0: huge, massive, enormous content and spoiler warning. I'm going to be talking about Game of Thrones, which contains adult themes, and there will be spoilers about the show and the books you have been warned. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. My name is Talia Murdoch, and I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, where this podcast is recorded. Today I am going to be discussing the economics of Game of Thrones, focusing on the free folk or wildlings as they are more commonly known. My initial thoughts I had before researching this episode were around democracy and feminism, immigration and refugees. I will mostly be talking about the last three topics in this one. I think democracy might become more relevant when I specifically talk about Mance Raider sometime. There will also be some talk around the survival economy, something that did not come up in my initial brainstorming, but is an interesting side of things. So let's start with a quick introduction of who the Free Folk are. The Free Folk to themselves, or wildlings to those who live south of the Wall, are true northerners and Westeros. They live north of the Wall at Castle Black in the harshest terrain and climate known to man. It is the only part of the continent that is not part of the realm or the Seven Kingdoms. They do not kneel to any king or queen that lives in the south. Until recently, the wildlings were not politically unified, but consisted of a large number of very different groups or tribes. The region lacks agriculture, mainly due to the brutal cold. So many of these tribes and people are semi-nomadic hunters. Some are more savage and primitive raiders, while others live in small settled communities and villages. I actually just started listening to a Hardcore History episode about the Celtic Holocaust, and Dan Carlin talks about his barbarian scale of 1 to 10, showing that how barbaric a group of people are is different depending on their way of life. So I think the same sort of thing could be used here. Some of the wildlings are more wild than others. And I do want to say that I don't really like the terms barbaric or savage. They just come up a lot in this context. In the novels and TV show, Mance Raider, a true wildling, was able to unify all tribes under himself to strengthen their position against the coming darkness, the rise of the Night's King and his army of whites. The people chose to follow Mance. No one was forced to. It is as democratic as it gets in Westeros at this time. I will not, however, be going into this in this episode, but it is an important piece of plot, at least to mention. Let's talk a bit now about the fact that the wildlings live in a survival economy. They have no coinage, there are no banks, no money, no monetary value to things. They live according to their basic survival needs. Because of the severe cold, there is little to no settled agriculture in the true north, and most of the economic activity in this region is fixated on hunting and gathering. These people truly live off the land and are more interested in obtaining things that are directly useful to them, so they also function on the barter system. In saying this, the wildlings do engage in at least some long distance trade with villages south of the wall, such as trading heavy furs for iron weapons. That's another thing to consider. The wildlings aren't good at, or just don't utilise metallurgy, which adds to them not having their own coin. So how could this way of life and economy actually work in reality? In the real world, even in the rest of Westeros for that matter, there are lots of goods available, lots of services available, a lot of people wanting and needing the goods and the services. So it would be complicated, for example, to figure out if a dozen eggs was in fact worth the same value as having your shoes mended. And the person mending your shoes might not necessarily want or need any eggs. Maybe they want new bowls. Then you would have to go and find someone who might trade you eggs for bowls then go back to have your shoes mended. This is part of the reason we use money. But if we didn't, if we were the wildlings, how do we know what something is worth? Well, when the economy is simple and there are few goods and services, like furs, weapons, food, and wine, much like in the region we are talking about, it becomes easier to measure and calculate the value of stuff compared to stuff. In the 1930s, a Soviet mathematician, Leonard Kantorovich, please excuse my pronunciation, stated that you could use a mathematical formula to figure out economic output for the given input. Now, at the time, this was hard to do because of technological limitations, but now in 2019, this is pretty easy. I found a neat article that goes into this, which I will sum up now. So first, in this survival economy, money obviously does not exist. What a dream. For every product, there are just three components effort over human, time spent, and technology. So each good or service would have a time cost. Let's say making a wooden arrow was two hours. Obviously these would be made in bulk, so it could take less time. Then whatever you are using to help make the arrow, maybe in the end the arrow is worth three hours, something like that. Then a more simple product, like a carved wooden spoon, might only be worth one hour of human effort, time and technology. You would need to trade three spoons to get one arrow and so on. This is a way of comparing the value of goods and services when there is no money to do so. As with every economy though, supply and demand would definitely come into play. If you were freezing and someone wanted to trade you their furs for all of your food, weapons, etc., you would probably do it, even if you knew the time cost of your stuff was worth more than the furs. Similarly, in the summertime when there is more food around, you can probably trade it for less stuff than during the winter. So without knowing for sure, perhaps the wildlings trade with these things in mind. They might not sit down and calculate it, but they would absolutely know what something is worth to them and what it might be worth to others. Again, they are very much driven by survival and not by things. Alright, how does feminism impact their economy? Well, I think it is pretty safe to say that the most significant feminist wildling, or woman even, is Egret. Egret is a warrior who lives and fights alongside her fellow man. She is respected and admired among them. Egret shows both John and the audience watching Game of Thrones that a woman can fight and excel at it, enjoy her sexuality independently, remembering that many of the other sexual women we are exposed to in Game of Thrones are sex workers, that she can love, And she can inflict harm and kill without flinching, all in the same day. She is essentially portrayed like men are. She breaks down these stereotypes set in the Seven Kingdoms of what a woman should be, and she just lives the life she wants to. Well, need I remind you the title of this very show? Everything has economic implications. Feminism is a key one here. When a village, a region, a kingdom, treat all genders equally, people are empowered to undertake what they love and what they are good at. When you do what you love and want, you do really well. The labour force grows with growth in people power and productivity is enhanced. This applies to men as well. Perhaps you are a man in this world and just feel better suited to household work rather than blacksmithing or something. Meanwhile, a girl might want to fight, think Arya Stark, And when society doesn't dictate what they can and can't do, they can excel. I mean, they can do what they want anyway, but they will meet more resistance when gender roles are established. Egret wants to be a warrior, and in her world she is able to do this. To the benefit of others, she is an incredibly skilled archer and survivor and is an asset to her team. But in saying all of this, we don't actually get to know a lot of other wildling women who are like Egret or any wildling men who undertake more stereotypically feminine roles. So it is hard to make a judgment as to what the norm is in the wildlings' world. I think we can all agree, though, that Egret is an amazing character in the series and says a lot about feminism in the books and the shows. Now on to what I find the most interesting aspect of the wildlings from an economic perspective. That is immigration and the acceptance of refugees. The wildlings, sadly like many, many people in the real world, are more or less refugees. They are fleeing a danger. Their lives are at risk and so they band together and head south in the hope of seeking refuge on the south side of the wall. This desire is not economically motivated when we think of economics in relation to money. They want to be protected from the White Walkers. Their story parallels the current day issue of the Syrian refugee crisis, where Syrians are fleeing their war-torn country because it is no longer a safe place for themselves and their families. Unfortunately, some people have negative perceptions of Syrian refugees, believing that they pose a security threat to the nations they seek refuge in. Similarly, people from the Seven Kingdoms feel this way about wildlings, that they threaten the safety of their community. In the real world, refugees are not terrorists. They are not a danger to the Western world. In reality, there is simply no evidence that immigration represents a significant risk for any country. In Canada specifically, since screening was put in place in 2001, the number of claimants found to represent any kind of security concern has been statistically insignificant. Given that the Wildlings and Game of Thrones are refugees in the same sense, they are fleeing danger, we can assume that the security risk they pose is also insignificant they are just people too. Now, other than doing the right thing by a fellow person and drastically improving someone else's life, keeping them alive and safe, you know, just being a good member of society, there are a number of economic benefits to accepting and supporting refugees. These realities would absolutely apply in Game of Thrones, as wildlings are resettled in the rest of Westeros. So first, our real world, a new working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research shows refugees provide a net contribution to the economy through the taxes they pay over time, countering the notion that they are a drag on the economy due to a reliance on social benefits. This study out of Notre Dame analysed a group of refugees in the US over their first 20 years and found that those who arrived as adults aged 18 to 45 contributed more in taxes than they received in relocation benefits and other public assistance. On average, the U.S. spends $15,148 in relocation costs and $92,217 in social benefits over an adult refugee's first 20 years. While over that period, the average adult refugee pays $128,689 in taxes. So we are looking at a $21,324 net benefit. Also, the younger refugees were, when they resettled in America, the more likely they were to catch up with their native-born peers educationally and economically. Those who arrived before the age of 14 graduated school and college at the same rate as American-born natives. They actually have a higher school enrollment rate. So how does this relate to Game of Thrones? Well, The wildlings bring a unique set of knowledge and skills that those south of the wall may not have. If we forget money, but consider these knowledge and skills as a way to measure costs and benefits, because they are a resource, they are just as likely to create a net benefit for Westeros. For starters, if they die north of the wall, they are just adding to the Knights' King's army. This is a very high cost. Keeping them safe brings benefits based on this alone. Also, their knowledge of what lies beyond the wall is much better than anyone else's. It is their home after all. This deep knowledge and connection can provide huge benefits in the war that is to come. Moreover, these people will work. Forgive me for saying this, but winter is coming and Westeros is going to need all the manpower it can get. In reality, migrant populations generally have a higher participation rate than natives, and I don't see why it would be any different in this world. In reality, in Game of Thrones, refugees are an important part of any population and economy, no matter which way you look at it. So that is it for today's episode, a little insight into the world of the wildlings through an economic lens. Having a huge data set would be so great, but unfortunately I have not been able to find one, so I do hope you enjoy listening to my theories instead. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now, I do not claim to be any kind of Game of Thrones expert, so if you think I got something wrong, you can head to cavegoblins.com and fill out my well-actually form. I'll link into it and update in the next part of this series. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at EveryEconomics or find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. We have so many amazing shows, so check them all out. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. Doug Vandellay here for Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Each week, I sit down with a comedian to talk about their career and their comedic influences. Learn about your favorite comedians talking about their favorite comedians. That's Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.